Hi, this is Tiffany Bova. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast, where I have the wonderful opportunity to welcome Ron Adner to the show today. He is a professor of business administration and professor of strategy and entrepreneurship at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. Prior to joining Tuck, he was also ASCO Noble Fellow of Strategic Management at NSEED, where he served on the faculty for 10 years. His award-winning research introduces a new perspective on the relationships between firms, customers, and the broader innovation ecosystem in which they interact to create value. His latest book, Winning the Right Game, helps companies succeed in the era of the ecosystem. And his previous book, The Wide Lens, What Successful Innovators See That Others Miss, I think was named Best Business Book of the Year by Strategy and Business. Is that correct, Ron? Um, That is, yes, thank you. Amazing. What a great honor. He is the founder of the Strategy Insight Group, whose mission is to help clients eliminate strategy blind spots and build robust go-to-market strategies in complex ecosystems, internal and external. Welcome to the show, Ron. Well, thank you, Tiffany. Great to be with you. Yeah, I'm thrilled. This is just such a conversation that's near and dear to my heart for my listeners. They are probably well aware. I spent a lot of time uh, both in the ecosystem and then advising some of the largest tech companies in the world on how to get better. So I am super interested to hear what you have to say. But before we get started, I have to do bullish and bearish. I'm going to ask you three quick questions. Bullish, you're for it. Bearish, you're against it. Nothing too serious. Are you ready? Yes, I am. All right. The first one, bullish or bearish? Meta for education. Bearish. Oh, all right. Next one, AI consultants. Bullish as a compliment, bearish as a substitute. Okay. Next one, space hotels. Bullish, depending on how big a market you think it's going to be. Not very big, highly. Okay. I don't know if it's highly profitable, but certainly the price tag will be high. Yes. All right. Well, fair enough. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm super interested. I'm not going to let this one fly by on why you were bearish for Meta for education. Tell me, tell me your thoughts. I think that, I think that trust, right, becoming bigger and bigger as an issue. Trust when it comes to how you educate your children. We are seeing schisms in society about you trust. You know what? Twenty years ago. Your kid's teacher was kind of your default person that you trusted. Today, we see all kinds of breakdowns in society about who you trust for educational content, et cetera. I think meta, particularly you know, meta today, has become much more controversial in different communities about trust. So the idea of allowing them to control it, I think, will be a very hard sell in a mass market. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. So let's let's dig in. I, I, I know that uh, your first book, I think it was your first book, but the wide lens was sort of a entry point to this next conversation. And I know we're really here to talk about the new book, but if there's something that might be a great segue to winning the right game, it might be about this sort of the widening of the lens, which I think in a lots of conversations I have with executives I see them get hyper narrow, right? And fixated and, and it blinds them to not being able to kind of see around those corners. So what, what can you, what, what can you ground us in to start there? So I would say that the notion of the wide lens was highlighting the point. So wide lens was focused on innovation and winning the right game is focused on competition and strategy. And I'll talk how they, they, they linked, but the, the, the kind of the insight that led me to this book, the wide lens was that 
when people think about launching new initiatives, new growth initiatives, what we've always promised and what, so what you know, teams focus on is if you can have an idea that your customer is really excited about and you can deliver on that promise and you can do it better than your competition, that's how you win. Historically, that was the deal. And you needed to do all three, right? Because if you did two out of three, if you have doing a great job better than your rivals on something that you care about, your customers don't, you lose. If you have a great idea that your competitor is doing better than you, you lose. But the historical promise that we've made is if you can do these three impossible things, you win. And stepping back, the realization is that is a framing that really focuses on you, your customer, and your competitor. And sometimes that is, it's always necessary to execute on those. But more and more, it's insufficient because more and more what we're finding is that that the kinds of propositions that companies are launching and also nonprofits um, end up depending on collaboration with other partners. And that's the difference between a narrow execution lens and the, the wide lens idea was to say, hey, can we be structured and explicit in how, it's not that people don't know that we have collaboration, but how do we put structure on this thing? So it means something more than just a vague cloud of interactions. And so the two pillars of wide lens that I introduced were first the idea of co-innovation. And that was the question of you're innovating. Is there anyone else out there who needs to innovate for your innovation to matter? And co-innovation is not just technological or product based. It could be procedural, regulatory, et cetera. And then the second piece was the idea of your adoption chain, which is besides satisfying your end customer, who else needs to buy in? in order for you to deliver, not your product or service, but your value proposition. And this expansion allows us to surface dependencies that can stay hidden in the outset of an initiative. And by seeing them early, we can begin to build strategies that align people, align partners, and, and so we can innovate and can create new initiatives more efficiently. So that was the, the idea behind why. Well, well, you've said a couple of things there. You know, first and foremost, I think it is one of the biggest issues I see when working with companies in, in my you know last life at Gartner and and obviously here is this kind of crisis uh, crisis of prioritization. Like we have to get all three right, but right does not mean perfect. If it's it doesn't have to be perfect. But I think where people miss is they don't think about one of those three, or they think one is more important than the other two. And so, or, or they're really good at two of the three and terrible at the third. So they only do two. And, and, and then they look back and go, I don't know why this didn't work. Like we've got a great product or we've got a great story, or we've got, you know, a great market opportunity. Our customers have told us this is what they want. And then yet it still fails to happen at that execution level. Right. And that was, that's kind of the, you know, the, the pitch for wide lens is we're so used to looking at those three factors that determine good execution that we, we tend to be surprised when things fail and we always blame, okay, maybe it was the wrong ideas, the wrong pitch to the customers when Quite often, and that this kind of the, the, the point of that, the exploration of that first book was seeing how to see and then how to avoid the situations where you have, 
It's about the difference between great innovations that succeed and great innovations that fail. Meaning they're both great. Like looking at bad innovations that fail, that's not interesting. Bad teams that don't do well. I mean, sometimes people get lucky and you can succeed with something that didn't deserve to. But the aha is looking at where it is that you have really perfect execution. And the surprise comes from not having seen or thought through deeply the relationships of the other pieces of the puzzle that need to come together. And that's the, you know, it's interesting. So like ecosystem, when you and I started the ecosystem game, that was still like a, a word you needed to explain. Today, it's like, it's lost all meaning, right? It's like disruption, right? It's just so overused. And kind of my line on this is that, you know, you can't have a business conversation today without hearing the word ecosystem. But in 99% of those cases, if you took out the word ecosystem and you put in the word mishmash, nothing would really change, right? And kind of what's interesting about that is that there is this, you know, it's used all the time because there's this overwhelming realization of we're not out there alone anymore. But the reason mishmash is a fine synonym is because what's missing is, okay, the structured approach to how do I think about that interdependence? Right. And that's, I think that's been the big Yeah. Change. And I, I often frame it with this super simplistic. My mom used to ask me all the time. So what do you do exactly? <laughs> right. Like, you know, and I'd be like, okay, I, you know, I was a channel chief at a technology company. I'm like, you cannot go like at the time. So I'm going to date myself here. You could not at the time go to Heinz.com and buy ketchup. You had to go to the grocery store. So I said, so I worked with the Heinzes of the world to help it get into the grocery store so that with, you know, some value proposition that then you, consumer mom, would be able to go buy Heinz. I go, that whole conversation, right, is where I sort of played. And so it was like, what's the product? Who's the customer? And how do they want to buy? And then underneath each of those, right, you'd be like, do I do it alone or do I do it with someone else? Do I do it with a bunch of someone right. else's? Like, and then it gets really complicated. Right. And kind of, I'd say what's changed is that was people trying to figure out what's the right way to divvy up the line to the end customer. And where we are today is we have that line to the end customer, but the end customer is bundling us with other things, with other pieces that we may not be aware of that we may not have control over or sometimes, you know, pieces that we want them to show up as part of the bundle. Um, but they may not be that interested. And then what happens is you end up with this, with an incomplete offer where you can deliver, you know, so one of the, the, the examples in wide lens was how, how Sony lost its advantage in ebook readers. Sony presents the world, the first electronic book reader in 1990. And, you know, it fails because of co-innovation issues. The screen technology is not good enough. They keep working on it for another 16 years before they deliver what the, everyone in the tech and, and, and product space, all the reviewers herald the rise of the ebook because Sony has finally given us an electronic book reader that does a better job than paper because they had that e-ink technology. Um, and then we know the story is going to end with Amazon coming into the market in 2007 and totally dominating with the Kindle. Now, so the question is, why, why did Amazon win? And when, when you look at what they offered at the time, the Kindle was, it was clunkier, it was more expensive, um, it was a closed platform. It had a lot of negatives compared to Sony's product. 
Um, and and by the way, with Sony, you could you you could get your books from any online bookseller, including the one that Sony set up. Where there's with Amazon, you could only buy your books from Amazon. Very very close system. From an end consumer perspective, the Sony offer looked a lot better. The aha was that Amazon presented what looked like for the end consumer a worse product, but all the negatives that came with the Kindle, the fact that there was a you know Amazon unique encryption, the fact that you couldn't take the book off, you couldn't share your books, et cetera, made it a much better proposition for the book publishers. And kind of the, 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 the victory there was even though Sony had a better product, and even though the publishers were willing to give them books, Critical partner, which was the publishers, they weren't willing to give them their best sellers and take the risk of piracy and the Napsterization of the book publishing industry. And so this was a great example of by the traditional metrics, Sony should have won. But because they missed this, the criticality of this partner, right? They knew about the partner, but they, they didn't build a strategy explicitly for incorporating them. They end up losing this market that they had envisioned for 20 years to Amazon. Yeah. And I think that that story could be played out in almost every industry. Exactly. A better product doesn't, doesn't survive. So now let's, let's shift to the winning the right game. Um, I think the obvious question behind winning the right game is what does it mean to win that versus the wrong game? So what's the difference between the right game and the wrong game? So okay, the, the, the title of the book is a little bit of a playoff of, you know, you, you remember when GE was the world's most successful company. And Jack Welch was, you know, the CEO of the century. And Jack Welch wrote this incredibly influential book called Winning. And that was regarded as really powerful advice. Like, how, how should I succeed, Jack? My, my first big speech, I was the warm-up act for Jack. So he's a tremendous, tremendous guy. I say this with full respect. But the, the notion of winning was if you wanted to be in GE as a, as, a, as, a, as a piece of GE, you needed to be number one or number two in your industry. And that was really well defined. Okay, if you're in the refrigerators, we look at your market share, we look at your profits, we know what's number one, number two. That was a sensibility that made enormous sense in a world where everything fell into neatly defined industries. The world we're in today is one where the boundaries between these industries are getting blurred, right? All the pieces are getting moved around. And so the, the notion is that thinking about winning is no longer enough. You have multiple players on the board coming in from different angles and with different incentives. And so this is this notion of winning the right game. And you're absolutely right that, you know, what it's supposed to evoke for you is then it's possible to win the wrong game. And the, you know, the, 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 the kickoff chapter in the book is the number one digital lesson that is, you know, the, anyone listening to this podcast would have heard a minimum of 10 times, which is the story of Kodak, which turns out has been told 100% wrong, right? So Kodak, we, you know, everyone knows, invents digital photography, then messes around and then goes bankrupt because they couldn't do digital. And that turns out to be 100% wrong. As, as I lay out in this chapter, which by the way, your you know, listeners can, can, can access the, the, this particular chapter in the story on my website. Kodak, starting in 2000, right? So throughout the 90s, they're trying to figure out internally what to do with digital. Starting in 2000, they make this incredible, incredible push to be a dominant digital photo printing company. New CEO, big investments, 
By 2005, they're the number one seller of digital cameras in the U.S. You, by the way, if you even go to a CVS or a Walmart today, you see their photo kiosks, right? So in 2005, Kodak pushes Fuji out of Walgreens for those photo kiosks, right? And the question is, how do you push your number one rival out of their number one account? It's not by being fat and lazy and asleep and inert. It's by being totally awesome. What turns out that Kodak goes through this incredible transformation to become a dominant digital printing company, right? They looked at the profits that HP was making and said, we're totally going to do this. Their problem, right? They still go bankrupt. But the reason they go bankrupt is not because they couldn't transform. It's because they transformed into a digital printing company, right? From analog printing, chemical printing to digital printing. And then digital printing itself became irrelevant because of the rise of digital viewing, right? So it's basically the ability to look at photos on screens and in your pocket on your iPhone that eliminates the need for anybody to print digitally. That's what winning the wrong game looks like, right? So Kodak won the game they set for themselves, which everybody said they would lose, which is they became dominant in digital printing, but it turned out to be the wrong game. And what's interesting, by the way, is how many times we've, we've, we've heard the story from really thoughtful people that attribute their failure to too inert, couldn't adapt. The lesson being that, you know, the audience should be bolder, take more risks. And yet this is like the poster child for how much we don't understand about this different kind of world we're in where the issue is not so much the technology transformation and technology disruption, but ecosystem disruption, right? It's not about managing a challenging transition from analog printing to digital printing. It's recognizing that printing itself may be overturned by a totally different concept of viewing. And I, and I think there's few things there. Let me, let me try to unpack that a little bit. One, I think winning the wrong game in that example is a perfect one, right? I'm going to pivot from one to the other, yet I'm chasing a market that eventually in three, five years is going to die off anyway. So I've won a market that's shrinking versus winning a market that's growing. But underneath that, you'd have to then have the fortitude to be able to say that market will eventually die because we see what's happening over here with the the cell phone technology. Because if you were looking at analog printing to digital printing and the BlackBerry, you would not pull those two things together and be like, the BlackBerry is going to replace digital printing. I mean, that's right. And so you needed other things to happen. So I guess the question for you would be, that requires a level of foresight, right? Out across the market on disruption that's happening in technology to be able to back into saying, hold on, that's going to be gone. You are, well, it requires foresight. It re requires the ability to think in a structured way about these kinds of issues. And so the, yes, exactly. And that's what these two books are all about is, it's not just stories, it's frameworks that actually let you work through this process that you can use proactively, right? It's not just happy or sad stories about what's happened in the past. It's exactly the relevant question is yours, which is, so how do I, how do I apply a mode of thinking to my situation in order to avoid this outcome? And this is, so, I mean, this is why, you know, it takes me 10 years to write each one of these books. 
is because, you know, the story itself, it's, it's history. It's interesting, but that's not really material to a reader. What's material is what's the framework that you can use to think through this kind of dynamic. And, you know, in the case of Kodak, basically there are two different, two different concepts that really allow you to start seeing this dynamic, not just understanding it in their case, but you can apply it to other settings. The first is this notion of what I introduce as a concept of value inversion, right? So what happens in that case? And again, you can see it all around you now. When we think about classic disruption, right, kind of the Clay Christensen kind of disruption, enormously influential and again, huge, huge respect for Clay. That was a story about a substitute technology that is off your radar that gets over time better and better and then eventually becomes good enough and then begins to enter your market. That's classic disruption. What's interesting there is that for all the dynamism in that story, you know, the industry always stays the industry, right? If it's Southwest Airlines versus United, it's still the industry and they're still selling you tickets. If it's Minimal Steel versus Integrated Steel, they're still selling you steel by the time. The, the core boundaries of the industry that stay the same, it's just the way the work is done changes. Ecosystem disruption happens from, not from below, but it happens from the side. It's when you have a partner who's a complementer who's in the game with you. Sometimes when we think, well, our default when we think about complementers is the better they get, the better our relationship, everyone's happy. That's what makes them a complementer. And, you know, in the Kodak case, we see that with a component technology like uh, an image processor, right? Which is Kodak says, we're going to make our money from printing photos, the consumables of the ink and the paper. And so the better the photos that people can take, the better off we are. That's true in the beginning and that's true all the way to the end. Then we have a different kind of relationship, which is like the, the, the sensors in the camera, right? So you remember when digital cameras first come out and if you had a four megapixel camera, you had a grainy picture and you were happier with an eight megapixel camera. But at some point, 20 megapixels, 40 megapixels, that complementary relationship, you, them improving their technology doesn't matter because you're not printing out a photo on the side of a bus. But then there's this third relationship, which is kind of the big aha, which there are some complementers that in the beginning, as they get better, you're better off. So this is like putting a screen on the back of a camera so you can compose your shot better. But those complementers, it really, it's, the, it's, the, it's the, the rise of the ubiquitous, super cheap, super high resolution screen, right? The retinal display that Apple put on the iPhone that that was a compliment that in the beginning it was great, but it got to a point of being too good and then suddenly replaces not the printer, but the paper, right? And this is what undermines the entire notion of digital printing, right? And that's a different kind of disruption, right? So you can think about those three trajectories and you know, look at a partner that you have and say, well, if they get 10 times better and 10 times cheaper, which of those three lines do I put them on? Right. And that's how we can begin to open up a conversation about, well, what's the dynamic through which partners become rivals? And as I'm looking at a particular rival, how do I think about the bucket there? Well, and I think there's other ways to define that as well. You know, I, I often sort of create, are you looking for a partner from a innovation standpoint? And sometimes those partners will be partners and sometimes they'll be 
coopetition, right? It's a competitor in mm -hmm. other categories, but you complement each other in a certain category. So there may be an innovation partnership. There may be a go-to-market partnership, like the catch-up through the grocery store. Like the go-to-market partnership is the right. grocery store to get to the consumer. And then it could be, I'm going into marketplaces. I'm going, right? It's a, But it's a go-to-market quote unquote ecosystem. Yeah. Then you have a service or support ecosystem. Like I'm selling something. I'm not going to hire a thousand repair people. I'm going to go find a network of those repair people. And so now you've got a ecosystem of services. And so I think deconstructing how you plan on growing, developing products, supporting, selling, servicing, all those things, and then going, do I build it? You know, do I buy it? That kind of age old conversation. But now it's sort of, do I build it? Do I buy it? Do I partner? Do I ecosystem? Do I marketplace it? Do I, you know what I mean? Do I, all of those things. Yeah. And so I'd love to hear in the last couple of minutes, if our listeners are about to launch a product or they have a product that might not be doing as well as they thought. And they're like, we know this is the greatest thing since X, Y, Z, whatever that might be. And they're in the middle of it. What's sort of the one, two, three things sit down with your team and do you know, I know that in those first couple of chapters, well, you can go to to uh, to the website and get the whole first chapter to download that has these frameworks. Ronadner.com. Um, is what would be the team meeting Monday morning to sit down and say, here are the three questions we should ask. What would they be? The three questions would be, as we're thinking about this launch, who are the actors in our ecosystem? Right? How do we map our ecosystem? Right? That's a methodology, particularly in wide ones. From there, as we look at these partners, the question is, which of these are engaged in a co-innovation relationship with us? Which are in an adoption chain relationship with us? Right? And by the way, a single partner can be engaged in both, as you said. Where are the minuses that these actors are seeing? That's in terms of setting up the ecosystem. But per this conversation about value inversion is, as I look at each of these partners and I project forward, where is it that I see this partnership staying where it is? And where is it that I see a potential that this partner moves out of its box into some other adjacency? And does that make me feel better or worse? So it starts with thinking about your value proposition and then thinking about not just what you and your team are doing, but the the set of, of partners and the structure of the relationships that need to come together to deliver that value proposition. From there, you think about the role of you know, the co-innovation and the adoption chain requirements implied by that map. And then from there, it's how do I bring this into alignment? What's missing? And, you know, this is a, this is a heavy lift. And sometimes it's scary because it's, oh my goodness, Am I going to just put this all out and go, we have made terrible mistakes here, here, and here? It's not about uncovering those mistakes to, you know, give the team the deflation. Right. It's more of the, how do we try to ensure that you will have the best chance at being as successful as you can be and getting your products and services into the hands of as many people as you need them to, in a way, by the way, that... These ecosystems, I think, and I'm, I'm sure Ron would agree, are the competitive opportunity of this sort of next decade, because it's going to be impossible to do it alone, without help, 
closed system, proprietary. Like I think those days, especially in the tech world, just think USB. USB is one of the best examples I can give. Could you imagine if we had to have different like device power cords across everything? It, the USB sort of connection point was a way for competitors to say, we're going to put our customers first. We have to co-innovate. We have to find a way to move forward. That's the way you get massive adoption. And so I think this has just been fantastic. So as we wrap this up, Ron, what, how can people stay in touch with you? Where can they, you know, I know we've mentioned a couple of times those first chapters, but how else can they stay in touch with your work? So I post a lot of stuff on ronadner.com. There are resources there besides the chapters precisely targeted at how to have a conversation with your team about these issues. I think, look, you said something really important, which is, wow, this seems like a heavy lift. Yeah. Complex world, complex environment requires really thoughtful strategy. And it's naive to think that it is not going to take a lot of concentration, right? The, 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 the return, however, is, wow, thinking through this stuff in advance, well, that's more work than not, but it is so much less work than fixing things a year or two down the road, right? And that's like, you know, the wide lens secret is it's more work up front. It saves an enormous amount of rework in the middle and the end. And I think this, this is, it's important in, in strategy conversations, especially today, it's a more complex world. You need a more complicated, a more refined strategy if you want to compete and succeed. Absolutely. Well, wise words for everybody. You heard it here on the What's Next podcast with Ron Adner. Thank you again, Ron, for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. I can't wait to dig into winning the right game. Go pick up your copies today and don't forget about the wide lens as well. So thank you again, Ron. Oh, thank you, Tiffany. What a fun conversation about ecosystems with Ron Adner. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. I learned a ton. Go pick up either one of his books, The Wide Lens or Winning the Right Game. Who wants to win the wrong game? Nobody. But I think doing the hard work, taking the time, spending time with your team to just do a quick touch base, make sure that you're on the right path to growth is really, really important. So thank you for joining me again on this episode of the What's Next podcast. My name is Tiffany Bova. Please don't forget to subscribe, share with your friends, leave some feedback. I'll look forward to having you join me next time. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.